to the Berkeley Technology Law Podcast. You're listening to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal Podcast. I'm Nathaniel Kellera. And I'm Andy Zakrich. In today's episode of our podcast, we will be speaking about California privacy laws and the California Privacy Protection Agency. In 2018, the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, was passed. This made California one of the first states to enact legislation for consumer privacy and data protection in response to more than 600,000 petitions signed by Californians. The CCPA gave California consumers several privacy rights. This includes the right to learn what information a business collects about them, delete their personal information, stop businesses from selling their personal information, and hold businesses accountable if they did not take reasonable steps to safeguard their personal information. A year ago, in November 2020, Californians voted on Proposition 24, or Prop 24, a ballot initiative called the Consumer Privacy Rights Act of 2020, or the CPRA. Prop 24 was aimed at expanding the CCPA, including preventing businesses from sharing consumers' information, correcting inaccurate personal information, and limiting the use of their sensitive personal information, such as geolocation, race, ethnicity, religion, etc. Most importantly, Prop 24 proposed the creation of the California Privacy Protection Agency, or the CPPA, to enforce and implement consumer privacy laws, protecting the privacy rights of consumers over their personal information and impose fines for violations. Last May, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced the establishment of the five-member inaugural board for the CPPA, composed of experts in privacy, technology, and consumer rights. The CPPA will have full administrative power, authority, and jurisdiction to implement and enforce the California Consumer Privacy Act and the California Privacy Rights Act. The chair of the CPPA was announced to be Professor Jennifer M. Urban, clinical professor and the director of policy initiatives at the Samuelson Law Technology and Public Policy Clinic at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. We had the opportunity to sit down with Professor Urban and discuss her new role. She will be helping us understand how the CPPA came into existence and what to expect from the CPPA in the upcoming years. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to the PTLJ podcast. This is Martin Fisher speaking, and I'm joined by Anuja Shah. And our guest today is Professor Jennifer Urban, who is, of course, a clinical professor of law at UC Berkeley School of Law. She's also the director of policy initiatives at the Samuelson Law Technology and Public Policy Clinic. And, uh, of course, she has been appointed as chair of the uh, California Privacy Protection Agency, or the CPPA. So we're very excited to have Professor Urban here to talk about uh, privacy issues, of course, and her upcoming work with the CPPA. Welcome, Professor Urban. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So as an introductory question, uh, we would like to set the stage for what has been happening in recent years in California, and, and especially in the past three to five years. Uh, we would say it's, it's fair to, to characterize California as being at the forefront of privacy policy within the US. Uh, one example is California's amendment in 1972 to include the right to privacy in its constitution. And of course, in more recent years, we have ena enacted state legislation and the CCPA 
uh, on 2018, the California Consumer Privacy Act. And now in 2020, uh, the amendments through the Consumer Privacy Rights Act or the CPRA in 2020. So of course, a lot is happening. Could you help us provide for our listeners a broad overview of this development? Thank you, of course. I do need to start with a disclaimer, which will be familiar to uh, many of your listeners, I think. I'm here in my personal capacity. I'm not speaking on behalf of the California Privacy Protection Agency or the California Privacy Protection Agency's board, of which I'm chair. I'm only speaking for myself, and I'm also not speaking for the University of California um, or, um, or the Berkeley Law School. So, uh, you know, you're right um, that California has long been a leader in privacy in the United States. And I think it is correct to date that at least um, one watershed moment to the addition uh, specifically of privacy into the California state constitution. We've had a number of laws uh, uh, over the years in the lead up to the California Privacy Rights Act of 2018, actually. So we have the California Online Privacy Protection Act, which, among other things, requires companies to have privacy policies. That was unusual in the United States. We have our own. Um, uh, we were the first state, uh, one of the first states, if not the first state, to have a data breach law, which are now ubiquitous across the states. Um, and... Um, we also have long had um, security laws. So, so we have our own version of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act here in the United States. It's really been a tradition. Um, it is also right to ask about the last three to five years because that's been another watershed with the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, followed by the initiative that amended it, the CPRA. Um, California has really once again moved to the forefront of privacy in the United States and, um, and, and actually the world in a lot of ways. So how did we get here? Um, California's long had a very motivated and involved citizenry that cares about privacy. There was a period of time um, in the 80s and 90s and in, in well into the 2000s in which the vision of privacy um, that most of scholars and um, businesses um, and sort of government officials followed was an idea of, of choice for uh, consumers so that they could make a choice about what was happening to their with their personal information. But um, it became more and more apparent that in practice, this choice was breaking down, that consumers weren't really informed of how their data were being used and they weren't really able to exercise choices. And the framework of the California Consumer Privacy Act um, attempts to make that choice real. We also noticed that um, over the last 10 years or so, there's been a real increase in public attention to privacy, reflected in press reports, reflected in um, how people talk about privacy uh, when they're surveyed, for example, and also in what kinds of laws people um, would like to support. So there's been what I would consider to be a clamor for privacy from the public. And what happened in California is we had a clamor for privacy from the public. And one citizen, Alistair McTaggart, who um, found that he was really concerned about how personal information was being used, and he had the resources um, to press for law um, uh, to change that. So the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018 actually started as a ballot initiative as well. Um, and Alistair McTaggart and a team 
of lawyers and, and, and other interested parties work to create this ballot initiative. Before it was put on the ballot, the legislature said, you know what, if we, if we go ahead and pass this, you won't have to put it on the ballot. And so there was some negotiation of the particulars of the law. The legislature, um, it was satisfactory um, to the proponents of the initiative. And the legislature passed the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. Um, thereafter, um, Mr. McTaggart um, and others thought that the law could use some strengthening and clarification. And this time, uh, they did um, propose and advocate for a ballot initiative, the California Privacy Rights Act of 2020, which passed the large majority in November of 2020. One of the um, main differences between the CCPA as amended by the CPRA and the original is that the CPRA created the California Privacy Protection Agency, uh, which is brand new. <laughs> um, uh, ballot initiative passed in November, almost exactly a year ago. Um, and um, the board of the agency was appointed in March of this year um, and uh, will be responsible for enforcing the the, um, the the law over time. Thank you for such a complete overview. Uh, I think that's very clear uh, how we got here. Um, also, maybe this is more of a mundane question, but but some of our viewers might be confused by all these acronyms. Uh, of course, the CPPA is the agency uh, that you will be chairing the board of, uh, but. Some commentators have discussed whether the CPRA is an amendment or will replace the CCPA. So how do you think about this and, and what will you be calling uh, California's privacy law going forward? I really like this question and no one should ever be embarrassed to ask it. Um, I realize that this is a student-run journal, but you should understand that the bar in California, the privacy bar, has had a lot of debate about this question, or a lot of curiosity, I suppose, about this question. So I've answered it um, uh, for the California Lawyers Association privacy section and others, uh, sort of longtime professionals as well. There is actually a straightforward answer, but if you read the proposition you sort of start to read the proposition, it's a little confusing because it says this title shall be called the California Privacy Rights Act of 2020. But that phrase is referring to the proposition itself. Um, it's like any amendment to a large omnibus law. The a law, it's, the, the overall law is the California Privacy Rights Act of 2018, and it's been amended by the CPRA. Uh, and the way that you can be certain of this, other than going to the California Code and seeing that it's still called the California Privacy, uh, Consumer Privacy Act, is that the section that talks about the agency's powers, the new agency, says that the agency will have full administrative power to implement and enforce the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. So that's the name of the law going forward, um, uh, but it has been amended by the initiative. I think that will help, help clear up uh, a lot for our listeners going forward. Thank you. Um, and also, maybe at a very basic level, uh, why do you think Californians need a specialized uh, state-level privacy agency? Uh, or at least why did the, um, the proponents behind Proposition 24 thought that was the case? It's unusual for there not to be a dedicated privacy or data protection agency um, among sort of highly developed countries at this point. 
um, the drafters of the California Privacy Rights Act, as I understand it, were looking in part to examples from especially Europe, where there are longstanding models of dedicated data protection agencies. Uh, we do have, of course, the California Department of Justice, which is still, which is already enforcing the the, um, the uh, CCPA, and um, has uh, enforcement powers over other related laws like competition laws um, and uh, and some of our other privacy laws. But there has previously not been a dedicated expert agency in the United States, and it has become more and more apparent that um, as data flows and privacy issues touch so many aspects of life, that having privacy be one part or data protection be one part of an sort of omnibus um, enforcement authority has not necessarily given those authorities sufficient resources um, or ability to protect um, people's privacy. So this is um, an experiment. Um, uh, but it's based on really long-standing and successful models in other parts of the world. Yes, and of course, it's an, an experiment where we're all certainly here at the BTOJ rooting for. Um, so, so I think it's clear that one of the main uh, amendments behind Proposition 24 was the creation of the agency, of course. But uh, those are not the only amendments made to California's privacy law, but uh, through the CPRA. Could you tell us which others might be some of the shortcomings or, or the sections that were amended in the privacy law by this, by Proposition 24? Sure, I can't be comprehensive and I won't state an opinion as to what is more or less important, but um, some of the things that were changed include adding to the consumer's existing right to know what information businesses have about them, to delete that information, and to opt out of um, selling that information, um, to clarify that selling, uh, to add sharing, to be for consumers to be able to opt out of sharing. Selling was already defined quite expansively in the CCPA, but the CPRA clarifies that sharing um, for um, some consideration is also covered. The CPRA also amended the CCPA to add a right to correction, uh, which is something that exists um, in the Fair Credit Reporting Act, for example, um, and, is all, and is also in the General Data Protection Regulation um, in Europe. Um, it's called the right to rectification there, but is not something that was already in, this, in the um, California Consumer Privacy Act. So it adds that. Um, it also, in creating the agency, gave the agency some important tools uh, and an authority to audit companies um, and a requirement that some companies who handle, um, who process data in a way that could, excuse me, create a significant risk to consumer privacy or security, do their own risk assessments that they file with the agency, um, and also that they do cybersecurity audits. It also imported the reasonable cybersecurity measures that exist in California law already directly into the CCPA. Um, and uh, by creating the agency and giving it administrative enforcement powers, it added an administrative enforcement um, component um, to privacy law in California. There are just a few of the changes, um, but those are some of the um, changes that um, I think um, are particularly sort of noticeable 
um, to, to people. Uh, thank you so much, Professor. I think that would be really helpful for our listeners just to, you know, kind of understand how the CPPA just came into being. But I think for someone who has never heard of the CPPA before, how would you describe the agency's role and the mandate? And just how, how would you describe its basic structure and organization to someone who's not heard of it before? One of the things that is interesting about the California Privacy Rights Act is that it is really quite specific about the California Privacy Protection Agency and what its role is. Um, so we, um, we know a lot just by reading the text of the statute. Um, so the statute says that the agency is charged with protecting the fundamental rights of natural persons with respect to the use of their personal information by implementing the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. And in undertaking its activities, the agency is to implement the law with the goal of strengthening consumer privacy while giving attention to the impact on business and innovation. So here we are in California. Um, we have a populace that cares a lot about privacy. We have policymakers who care a lot about privacy. We have businesses even that care a lot about privacy. Um, and we have a lot of, of innovation, particularly tech innovation, biotech innovation. So those things are both mentioned um, in, in the law. The law gives the agency quite wide ranging um, authority and responsibilities. Uh, so the um, CPRA directs the agency to engage in rulemaking. So administrative rulemaking that defi further defines, expands on and describes how um, uh, businesses and residents of California are to comply with the law. Enforcement, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more um, in a bit. Public awareness, which I think is very important. Public awareness includes um, guidance for consumers and guidance for businesses and helping um, the populace of California to understand its rights, along with some other activities. So if the legislature needs privacy advice, um, the agency, uh, the law says the agency um, may provide privacy advice to the legislature. The agency is meant to monitor developments, business models, um, and telecommunications technology um, in order to um, uh, uh, update its regulations or sort of generally figure out how it needs to keep up with um, ever-changing needs of residents with regard to their personal information. Um, and it's also authorized um, and requested to coordinate with other authorities, both uh, in the United States and outside the United States so that there is um, coherent privacy protection. But the bottom line is that the law is really clear on the agency's basic mandate, which is protecting the fundamental privacy rights of natural persons with respect to their useful, excuse me, their personal information. Um, and then the agency's given quite a few responsibilities and powers um, to give that form. You also asked a little bit about the structure um, the agency is governed by a five-person board. Two members, including the chairperson, are appointed by the governor. So as the chairperson, I was appointed by the governor. Uh, one um, board member is appointed by the Rules Committee of the Senate, which in practice means the president pro tem of the Senate. One member is appointed by the, um, by the head of the assembly and one by the Attorney General. 
Um, so I'm the chairperson. The other gubernatorial appointee is Chris Thompson. The attorney general's appointee is Angela Sierra, and she used to run the consumer group um, uh, in the civil division at, um, at the attorney general's office. These, um, the Senate um, President Pro Tem's appointee is Lydia De La Torre. She is uh, a very experienced and knowledgeable uh, privacy and data protection attorney in Silicon Valley, um, who is from Spain and is expert in European law as well as U.S. law. And the Assembly's appointee is Vincent Lay, who works with the Greenlining Institute, which is a nonprofit that seeks um, to create equity um, uh, in tech issues um, across the state of California. So I've been really honored and pleased to work with these members of the board. They really have a lot of expertise and they're very dedicated to the mission of the agency. The law also directs the board to um, hire an executive director. Uh, we recently hired our executive director, uh, Ashkan Sultani. I'm very excited about this hire. Mr. Sultani um, actually um, is a Berkeley alum. He has um, a degree from the, L uh, excuse me, the information school here um, at Berkeley. He is a very highly regarded technologist and privacy expert who was um, previously the chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission and helped set up their um, Office of Technology. Um, I'm blanking on the exact name, but OTEC. It's basically their um, tech experts um, at, at the FTC. Uh, and uh, he, um, he's long, he really understands the, um, the privacy issues and the technology and how they interact, um, as well as um, a lot of, as well as the sort of poly, the broad policy questions around the law. So the CPRA also directs us to hire a chief privacy auditor. And this, I think, is quite important and, and pretty interesting. Um, what is a chief privacy auditor? The law doesn't describe it, but my understanding is that the drafters were thinking of similar positions that exist in Europe, but have previously not so much existed here. But somebody with the expertise to be able to audit um, not only, but particularly tech business models that use data privacy. And that person may end up being the head of enforcement or they may play a complementary role um, working with the enforcement authorities and, and advising the rulemaking authorities on um, how how to, um, uh, to inform their work. That's what the law sets out. Um, and Mr. Sultani, who's now on board, is actively working uh, to develop the rest of the structure of the agency. But at the moment, it's five board members who are volunteers. They get a per diem honorarium of $100 a day um, for days that they do substantial work on behalf of the agency, Mr. Sultani. <laughs> Um, and we've also been able to hire um, some uh, part-time retired annuitants, they're called, um, who have come back from retirement. So we have an interim general counsel, which has been wonderful, and an interim deputy director of administration, uh, their half-time. So we're very actively working to develop positions and hire them. There's a, there's a large number of steps that have to be um, traversed in order to develop and hire a position in state government. Um, for very important reasons, uh, we have a number of control agencies, the Department of Finance, the State um, Controller's Office, uh, because of course we're spending public money. 
So it's very important to be to have those processes in place and to have transparency. That also means it does take a little bit of time. Um, so for the moment, the board um, has divided itself into subcommittees to work on the upcoming administrative rules that um, we are due to put together by a pretty in a pretty rap, on a pretty rapid timeline. Um, the other thing that's important about the structure of the agency right now to understand is that um, because the board it has to be so active in the work, is that the board is governed by what's called the Bagley Keene Open Meeting Act. California has very expansive um, public uh, transparency requirements, again, for very important reasons. What that means in practice is that we really can only talk in public, in public meetings that are noticed 10 days in advance. Um, and that has, again, for very important public transparency reasons, the public gets a place at the table. But it, of course, also is a little complicated um, if you're trying to sort of do the actual work of figuring out, you know, how to draft the rules. So Bagley Keene does allow us to work in subcommittees of two people um, who can act in an advisory capacity. So we have one subcommittee, uh, that's Ms. Sierra and myself, who are working on the rules to update um, the existing rules that the Attorney General um, created for the CCPA. Ms. De La Torre and um, Mr. Lay are working on what we're calling new CPRA rules, things that are brand new, automated decision-making, that audit authority that I mentioned, and that kind of thing. And Mr. Thompson and Ms. De La Torre are working on the process um, uh, for the rulemaking itself. So that way we can kind of go off and do a little bit of substantive work and then come back into a public meeting and, and discuss it. So the public is kept aware of what we're doing, but they don't have to listen to us, you know, talk about the, you know, the, the detail that, <laughs> that, uh, that, um, I think would be pretty mind numbing, um, uh, um, if we try, if we try to do all of that um, on a ten day notice and in a public meeting, um, but uh, we should we are working quickly um, and as quickly as we can to ramp up um, the agency. And over time, um, the budget for the agency is approximately fifty people. So it would take a while to get there, um, but uh, that's sort of if you're imagining the general size. That's 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 around that's the general size. Oh. Thank you, Professor, for that very detailed information regarding the structure and the role of the CPP. I'm sure it's going to help clear a lot of questions that our listeners might have. However, you did mention something about enforcement powers of the CPPA. Could you please elaborate on that a little bit about the enforcement powers that the CPPA has and what are the tools that are at the CPPA's disposal? The, um, the CPRA gives the agency administrative enforcement authority and audit authority. And so I'll talk about that um, a little bit to, so that it's a little bit more clear for listeners. So the um, agency is able to bring administrative actions in front of an administrative law judge and issue administrative fines. The agency has the right um, to investigate based either on a complaint from a third party, that would be a resident of California, um, maybe, um, uh, maybe another business, or on its own initiative. Uh, so the agency can investigate, then has to establish probable cause and give the defendant an opportunity to respond. Uh, after that, if there's probable cause, the agency will hold an administrative hearing. And then it has the ability 
um, uh, to um, require injunctive relief, cease and desist, basically, stop doing what you're doing, um, and or a fine. And the fines are $2,500 up to $2,500 per violation or $7,500 per violation if it's intentional um, uh, uh, or the business knows that the information was um, somebody under 16 years old information. The agency, um, so that's sort of basic enforcement. The agency also has audit authority that I mentioned earlier. The law simply asks the agency to issue regulations defining its audit authority. So that will likely be part of the regulation package the agency is working on now. Um, and it also, the law also has some other information tools that um, are more um, uh, on the business side. So businesses that um, handle information uh, where their processing of that information um, poses a significant risk to consumer privacy or security need to do cybersecurity audits. And they also need to do risk assessments that they submit to the agency. So that's information coming into the agency to help it understand sort of the status. Okay, so I mentioned administrative enforcement. There's also civil enforcement, suing in court. And the law um, uh, uh, envisions this collaborative enforcement between the new agency and the Attorney General's Office, the California Department of Justice, which is currently enforcing the CCPA. The California Department of Justice continues to have civil enforcement authority. So the agency can do administrative enforcement and the Attorney General can sue in court um, if it chooses. The um, law develops out sort of how the collaboration generally will work. Um, the Attorney General can request that the agency stay an investigation or an administrative proceeding so that it can decide whether to sue in court. Um, and then once the agency, but once the agency has issued an administrative ruling, um, then there can't be a civil case, right? So it's sort of, we are to, co we collaborate, we, we will in the future <laughs> collaborate in order to decide what's the best course of action. And then either the attorney general will sue or the agency will follow um, the uh, administrative procedures. Um, thank you so much, Professor, for that very holistic insight into all the powers of the CPPA. Uh, I think we should discuss a little bit about timelines now. I mean, we understand that the CPPA is still being set up and that the CPRA will come into effect only in 2023. Um, what would be a rough timeline for the CPPA to be completely up and running as an enforcement agency? And why is it necessary to have this uh, two-year gap? Well, I talked a little bit about staffing. Uh, so that will happen sort of as quickly as it can happen with uh, the important and necessary constraints um, on, on all state agencies. The CPRA sets out timelines, as you mentioned. Um, so the initial rulemaking package, uh, which updates the existing rules as needed and um, uh, includes rules for some new things, um, at least that's what the law envisions, um, uh, is to be completed on July 1st of next year. So that's 2022. And then the law takes effect January 1st, 2023, with a couple of limited exceptions. Uh, and enforcement, uh, the agency's enforcement powers attach in July of 2023. So you asked about why there's this 
sort of staggered timeline or why there's a gap between the initiative passing and when it takes effect. Um, basically, uh, it's in order to provide continuity and notice. So there are a lot of businesses and consumers relying on the existing regulations, um, and they need some time in order to digest and understand the new amendments to the law, and they will need a little bit of time um, to understand the regulations um, that will help implement the law. So the, the sort of staggering gives them some time uh, in order to, uh, to implement. So if you might recall, if you took a class on it or studied the GDPR, the GDPR also had um, a space of time before it began to be enforced in order to give um, uh, interested parties the time to retool things and, and be able to comply. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Um, once the CPPA is completely set up, what in your opinion would be the, you know, the immediate effect of the agency's work for, the California's, for California's residents and for the consumers? And how exactly do you think the consumers and residents can make use of the CPPA and interact with the CPPA? It's a little bit hard to predict with specificity um, because things are still being built. But as I mentioned earlier, the, CC, the CPPA, excuse me, has a public awareness function. And so, and I do know from board meetings that the board um, really um, uh, is very invested in that. So um, there will certainly be opportunities for the public um, to interact and with, the, with the agency in the future. Right now, there are a few things that consumers can do. Most importantly, they can enforce their rights under the, under the CCPA by sending notices to businesses. Um, and if they don't get a response or a business doesn't have the appropriate mechanism, they can use a tool on the Attorney General's website um, that the Attorney General um, introduced in July. If you go to the um, website for the Attorney General in the state of California, privacy, you'll find a tool where you can um, let the AG know about this so that they um, can, uh, uh, as they're working on enforcement, um, they can um, address it. Um, there's also um, the uh, possibility of a private right of action, meaning that consumers can directly sue in court um, for certain kinds of data breaches. So that already exists, um, and it's a little bit expanded when the CPRA um, takes effect. So that is something consumers can directly do. Right now, um, engaging with the agency, um, there are a few things. One is come to our board meetings and engage as a public citizen. Uh, I ask for public comments after every item on the agenda and at the end, and we really welcome public comments. And um, engage with our rulemaking. So we actually just ended a public um, comment period um, for part of our preliminary information gathering. Um, but keep an eye out for informational hearings, forums, um, possibly other requests for comment. And when we issue our draft rules, um, there is the opportunity for public comment. So um, people absolutely um, can um, tell us what they're thinking in a number of different ways. And we really value that and would hope um, to hear, hear from folks. Thank you for telling our listeners how they could potentially interact with the CPBA. But another interesting thing is, while this is about California residents and consumers, I think what our listeners would like to understand is how, are, how will businesses try to navigate this new regulatory landscape? How could they potentially interact with the CPBA? 
Well, um, they also, we hope, will um, interact via comments, either through the formal rulemaking process or um, some of the preliminary activities that we're um, engaging in. And they're also welcome to um, join meetings and, and give public comment. Um, what they can do um, right now, sort of in terms of preparing and um, complying with the existing CCPA, is you know make it easy for consumers to communicate their rights. Respond effectively um, when you get notices from consumers. You can look at past um, AG enforcement actions. They, in July, released uh, a set of examples um, to understand the kinds of mistakes that businesses might be making, um, and uh, and um, you know work to work to um, make sure that consumers can exercise their rights, um, and work to be sure that you have reasonable cybersecurity, um, which is a requirement in the law. So again, you know, let us know um, through comments or um, other venues what's working, um, anything that was sort of unforeseen that you're running into. Um, and just um, work to let consumers exercise their rights. Thank you very much, Professor Urban. Uh, we would like now to shift gears a bit um, and, and maybe talk about how you see the development of privacy law going forward, uh, not only in California, which we have been, of course, focusing on, uh, but also maybe at a federal level in the US. Uh, there have certainly been uh, pushes at some stages and and attempts to to uh, bring federal privacy uh, or, or encompassing federal privacy legislation for the U.S., but that have been so far unsuccessful. Uh, do you think California's uh, push, uh, recent push for for legislative legislative action, uh, could maybe uh, help the U.S. as a whole at a federal level to enforce privacy legislation, or would you think that? Uh, maybe a different scenario is possible where just uh, states will follow California's lead individually. California, as you alluded to, um, is, a, is a leader in this area, as it has been a leader in other areas, for example, environmental protection law and consumer law generally. Um, so I think that it is, maybe I'm a little biased as a Californian, but you know I think it's unsurprising that California is leading um, there have been efforts at the federal level, as you said, they haven't, um, you know, there, there's been a lot of debate and discussion, um, but that's sort of been where it has stayed at the moment. I do think it's really interesting that recent discussion uh, at the federal level talks about giving the Federal um, Trade Commission resources um, and maybe creating a dedicated uh, bureau within the Federal Trade Commission or maybe even something something sort of more separate that is, again, a specialized um, authority. Uh, and I think that grows from California's example and also the European example. Um, and a recognition, again, of how data processing and practices touch um, so many parts of the economy and um, people's lives at this point. Um, there have been um, some exciting um, uh, developments uh, in other states. So Virginia um, has a comprehensive privacy law now. Colorado has a comprehensive privacy law now um, that took effect just in May, I think. Um, and each of those laws share some characteristics with the California law and have some divergences with the California law. So that gets to the second part of your question. The U.S. has a long tradition of states being able to be responsive to local conditions and to the needs of their residents. 
and privacy so far has been no different. So I'm really excited to see um, other states um, take the initiative. It's certainly possible that you know the U.S. could provide more resources to the FTC, um, and that would be a really positive development. Um, but as with the GDPR, which is a general framework that then member states implement in the way that is appropriate for their countries, um, privacy, as many other areas of law, is very responsive to local conditions and local needs. And um, while data travels across borders, so if states um, and, and other jurisdictions around the world um, are responsive to the, the data flow across borders issue by thinking through what are common building blocks, common things that we all share, and then being responsive to local conditions. Um, that is, again, this is my own opinion only. <laughs> um, I think that is a, um, uh, an appropriate way for privacy policy to develop. I was just wondering on, on some of the topics that you touched just there, because of course, California is a leader in this area uh, uh, for all the reasons that we have been discussing, uh, but also many of the biggest uh, companies, or, or let me rephrase it, many many California companies, companies have global businesses, of course, and they, their data travels around the world. Uh, and they, of course, have to interact with uh, the CPPA uh, going forward, also with uh, the FTC to the extent applicable, uh, and the the European Commission uh, and many other national authorities that we might see popping up very soon. Uh, how do you see the CPPA's role in in such a packed and diverse uh, landscape in a way? I think it's very complementary, and the CPRA actually also anticipates this. Um, so section 1798.19940i directs the agency to cooperate with other agencies with jurisdiction over privacy laws and, and data processing authorities in California, other states, territories, and countries um, to ensure the consistent application of privacy protections. Um, as I'm as you can tell, I, I, I've really familiarized myself with that particular provision because I think that it's so important to this balance that I was talking about in response to your last question, that there are local conditions. Um, those conditions are important. Californians really um, demanded a high level of privacy. Um, and at the same time, we understand that um, that data flows in, you know, across all kinds of jurisdictions. So being able to cooperate and collaborate uh, and to um, sort of develop some norms, I think is really important. Uh, the other thing that's really important about that provision um, is that um, it gives us the authority to cooperate and collaborate with other jurisdictions over um, maybe problems that uh, cross jurisdictional borders. Um, I, I think it's something like the state attorneys general often will get together when there's a problem that isn't just a problem of one state, it's a problem that is affecting citizens in, in multiple states. And they might bring a lawsuit on behalf of all of their states, um, or they might engage in some other enforcement action um, on behalf of all of those attorneys general. And so the, um, the agency having that authority and that responsibility, I think is an important part of the law um, that uh, reflects um, the truth of, of your question, that, uh, that we need to be attentive to the fact that there are 
um, uh, many jurisdictions um, uh, across the world and um, uh, thinking through, you know, what are the commonalities of privacy uh, is going to be a really important part um, of privacy going forward. Thank you so much, Professor, for giving us an insight of how the CPPA functions in this global tech industry. Uh, what is interesting to me, and I think a lot of listeners would agree, is one of the major changes in the CPRA over the CPPA was that it kind of increased the threshold number of consumers for a company to be subject to privacy regulations from 50,000 to 100,000. And one of the primary reasons for this was to exclude small and medium businesses from its operation. However, do you think that this is a very good uh, amendment? And do you think that in order to get a comprehensive privacy protection, it is important to eventually include small and medium uh, businesses under the law's operation? Or do you think consumers can uh, attain their privacy goals without, by focusing only on the big companies? Thank you. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I think that the drafters were going for a balance um, in trying to sort of create time and space for businesses that maybe didn't have as many resources um, as some of the larger businesses, while also creating the possibility for um, businesses to decide uh, to live up to the strong standard that is in the CCPA. And I say that because um, uh, Section 1798.199.40, somewhere down there, maybe J or K, um, uh, asked the agency to establish a, a mechanism whereby people doing business in California who don't meet the threshold um, can still voluntarily, self, voluntarily certify that they're in compliance. Uh, and I, the reason why this is important uh, is because it allows businesses of any size to mark themselves as um, attentive to privacy, attentive to consumer rights, um, and allow um, consumers to understand if they're making choices in the marketplace, which businesses um, are, are paying attention to this and, and are following the protections uh, of, of the CPRA. So this provision, I think, creates the possibility, again, of uh, creating a marketplace that actually gives consumers choice with regard to privacy. Um, and it gives businesses the opportunity to differentiate themselves in that marketplace on the basis of privacy and allow um, consumers to choose them uh, based, at least in part, um, on their privacy practices. So the law sort of strikes a balance between size and um, who will be immediately required to comply while still creating the possibility um, for smaller businesses to differentiate themselves if they would like to. Um, and then I think over time, you know, we'll learn what is working um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and go from there. All right. Thank you so much, Professor. That was really helpful. I think all of us, and I'm pretty sure our listeners know CPPA a lot better now, and they can have a discussion with anybody anywhere. <laughs> so thank you so much for that very informative session and getting all of us super involved and interested in privacy law. And we can't wait for 2023 and just to see how all of it plays out. Thank you all very much for having me. I really enjoyed this um, and uh, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening. The BTLJ podcast is brought to you by podcast editors Seth Bertolucci and Isabel Jones.
Our executive producers are BTLJ's senior online content editors, Karnik Hajar and Thomas Horn. BTLJ's editor-in-chiefs are Locke Ho and Natalie Crawford. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, write us at btljpodcast at gmail.com. The information presented here does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only.